You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. Well, I want to give a hand to Martin Luther. I mean, that man lived with such confidence, did he not? I love singing that hymn. And the Israelites are going to need that confidence with what they're going to face across the Jordan River. And you and I need the same confidence with what faces us this week uh, in the days ahead. And Moses is preparing the Israelites to live with just such confidence. He's warning them, by the way, against tight-fistedness. Tight-fistedness is what happens when we lose confidence in our lives. We grab on and we hold a little tighter to whatever little things we have. But he's asking the Israelites to think, as I believe God is asking us to think this morning. What has God given you? that would allow you to live with open hands. Our text this morning is Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. Would you pull out a Bible? And as we read this together, I want to invite you to watch for hands. I count six references, in the, in the Hebrew at least, to hands. It's all over the place. So as we read, be watching for closed hands and open hands. Let's stand together if you're able and uh, we'll read God's word aloud together. This is uh, Deuteronomy chapter 15 verses 1 through 11 on page 150 of the Pew Bible. And when we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. If you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading his holy word. Every 7th year you shall grant a remission of debts. And this is the manner of the remission. Every creditor shall remit the claim that is held against a neighbor, not exacting it of a neighbor who is a member of the community, because the Lord's remission has been proclaimed. Of a foreigner you may exact it, but you must remit your claim on whatever any member of your community owes you. There will, however, be no one in need among you, Because the Lord is sure to bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you as a possession to occupy. If only you will obey the Lord your God by diligently observing this entire commandment that I command you today. When the Lord your God has blessed you, as he promised you, you will lend to many nations, but you will not borrow. You will rule over many nations, but they will not rule over you. If there is among you anyone in need, a member of your community in any of your towns within the land that the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your needy neighbor. You should rather open your hand, willingly lending enough to meet the need, whatever it may be. Be careful that you do not entertain a mean thought, thinking the seventh year, the year of remission is near, And therefore, view your neighbor with hostility and give nothing. Your neighbor might cry to the Lord against you, and you would incur guilt. Give liberally and be ungrudging when you do so. For on this account, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. Since there will never cease to be some in need on the earth, I therefore command you, Open your hand to the poor and needy neighbor in your land. This is the word of the Lord. The grass wither and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. I think this morning we could all agree 
that Steve Jobs made the world a better place. Uh, an extraordinarily gifted man who lived uh, a brilliant and beautiful life, and we're all grateful for him. But I will say that as uh, news comes out recently with this new biography and other information subsequent to his passing, uh, we're learning more about Steve Jobs, and we're seeing that at least in one way, Steve Jobs is very much like me, and I dare say very much like you, and that is that there was a place in his life that he held on to something with a tight fist. We're learning that Steve Jobs and his birth father lived estranged from one another. And that there was between them a kind of a, a bitterness that would not be bridged. Apparently the, the reports of Steve are that throughout his life, he experienced the hurt of having been abandoned. At age six or seven, a playmate asked him about his being adopted. And she said, does that mean your real parents didn't want you? Steve Jobs said, lightning bolts went off in my head. I remember running into the house crying. Another friend of Steve's just after college spent a lot of time with him and he told the biographer, Steve uh, talked to me a lot about being abandoned and the pain it caused. Uh, ironically, um, Jobs himself would father a child and abandon that child. He'd fathered a child with Chris Ann uh, Brennan, and he was the same age as his father had been when uh, Jobs was offered for adoption. Uh, Jobs later in his life looped around and took responsibility for this child, but her mother said of him that Jobs was full of broken glass. She said, he who is abandoned is an abandoner. A friend of both uh, Chris Ann Brennan and uh, Steve Jobs and a partner of Jobs at Apple uh, stayed close to both of those, and he said this, the key question about Steve is why he can't control himself at times from being so reflexively cruel and harmful to some people. That goes back to being abandoned at birth, he says. The real underlying problem was the theme of abandonment in Steve's life. Who would have known? But apparently there was some part of his life that he held on to. He was tight-fisted and he just couldn't let it go. As uh, Steve Jobs was sick and apparently dying, his father, Abdul Fattah Jandali, a Syrian who had done well in the gaming industry, living in Nevada, took an interview with the son. And he himself was holding on to something. He said, if I could live my life again, I would do things entirely differently. And even more so in recent years, when I've heard that my son is gravely ill. By the way, uh, John Dolly just found out that Jobs was his son in 2005. It makes me feel like time is running out and that I am totally helpless. This might sound strange, though, but I am not prepared, even if either one of us was on our deadbed, deathbed to pick up the phone to call him. Steve will have to do that, as the Syrian pride in me does not want him ever to think I am after his fortune. I am not. I have my own money. What I do not have is my son. And that saddens me. Apparently, reports are that uh, Mr. 
uh, John Dolly sent a couple of emails to Steve Jobs uh, near the end of his life, wishing him well. Uh, but uh, although Jandali says that Steve replied with a two-word answer, uh, thank you, the Wall Street Journal just recently published that, in fact, Steve Jobs never answered his birth father's emails. Tight-fisted. One with pride, another with hurt and bitterness. How about you? What are you holding on to? that you could just as soon give up? What are you holding on to that you really could just give away? I got a text message from a friend this week, actually a dear friend from Boston. He said, George, I'm in town, and I would sure love to introduce my wife to, uh, to Anne, my wife, and I uh, want you both to meet our new baby. You tell the time. I'll be there. We'll make it work. And I thought, Jesus, this last minute. You know, it was Monday afternoon, and Ann and I were actually just leaving Harborview Hospital. We were heartbroken. And um, it's just bad time to get this email. It's not that I didn't want to be with my friend. It's just that I, I didn't know how I could work it out. I, at a red light, I looked at my BlackBerry, and I looked at my schedule. I just threw the week, and it was totally booked. I mean, all the way through the days. Every single night, there, there was some, something already planned. And, um, and I noticed I had two different house guests from out of town coming in this week. And this would be the third. And I thought, you know, I want to be with him. I know it's the right thing to do, but I said to Ann, I just can't do it. I just don't want to do it, really. I'm not this week. And I could just feel my hands starting to tighten up to hold on to this thing. And I, I, didn't, I, I wasn't proud of that. And Anne, she goes, she goes, I think you're right. You don't have time to do it. She always takes my side. I love that about her. <laughs> and so I didn't even want to call him back, to be honest, totally honest. I don't, you know, because I'm just exhausted. And I just want to be home and light a fire and be with the kids. And uh, I said, I'll, I'll call back. We'll pray for bad traffic. I'll just right now. I'll just call him right now. And I'll just tell him I can't do it uh, between now and the front door. She said, you do that. Make the phone call. So I call him up and we talk and I hear his voice and it's great. And I thought, oh, just, I'd love to. I just thought I can't do it. I'm sorry. But it didn't feel right. And he talked me into a 6.30 a.m. jog together. So I eventually, I eventually did let go. And I opened my hands up. But it was hard. I am tight-fisted. And every one of us, I think, in some area of our life, hold on to something with a tight-fisted grip. See, pastors get tight-fisted about their time. Spouses get tight-fisted about their affection. Parents get tight-fisted about their approval. Children get tight-fisted about their appreciation. The rich get tight-fisted about their wealth. Adolescents get tight-fisted about their emotions. Co-workers get tight-fisted about their praise. Neighbors tight-fisted about their hospitality. And I learned this last night as I interviewed some teenagers. Students get tight-fisted about their pens. Never knew that. I learned that the person who's asking for a pen is asking because they've lost the pen. And if you loan them your pen, you're not going to see it again. Better to hold on. When we think about our own tight-fistedness, the thing is, most of us think that we really should open our hands. We do. We know that. But the good news of life with the living God is not that we should open our hands. It's that we can. So the living God 
does something in us that allows us to open our hands. This is what Moses is talking about when he describes this institution, the year of remission. The word remission in Hebrew is the simple word for dropping. It's the year of dropping. He says when he's talking about remitting debts, he's just saying, just drop it. Just let it go. Just drop it. Every seven years, just drop it. You have to understand how countercultural this is in that I, uh, in in the ancient Near East, in the second millennium, we know that the interest rates were between 20 and 50 percent. In the ancient world, you didn't take a loan for commercial purposes like we do today. You take a loan because you're in crisis. You take a loan because your oxen got sick and died, because you broke your ankle, because you, uh, um, you, 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 your, your spouse or your father, someone died, and you're risking destitution. So you turn to a neighbor and you say, can you help me out? I need a loan. Israelites were not allowed to charge interest against one another in the country because, again, borrowing and loaning is not about increasing wealth. It's about serving and helping somebody in need. So imagine a culture in which the going rate is between 20 and 50 percent. In fact, when you think about a regressive interest rate, the poor we're being charged more than the rich. We, how do we know that? Around the time of Hammurabi, we have records that grain is going for 33, 33 and a third percent. That's grain when you're hungry. Silver is going for 20 percent. The rich who are buying or borrowing for silver are paying a lot less than the poor. See what this is? This thing is, what Moses is talking about, is really the first Occupy movement, right? It's not Occupy Wall Street. It's not Occupy Seattle. This is Occupy Canaan. Says I have a vision of justice in this place that is so beautiful. And here's how it's going to work. You're going to know a God among you who's a living God who's going to give you the freedom just to drop it every seven years. And, you know, by the way, it's not clear what we're dropping exactly. Or are, are we dropping the loan? Or are we dropping the pledge? I think it's just the pledge because after 50 years, you've got the great year of Jubilee when all the debts are forgiven and the land reverts to its original family owner's. But anyway, the point is clear. Just let it go. Open up your hands. And this is what justice will look like. It's not laying it at the claims of the corporate boardrooms of the day. It's not laying it at the feet of the, 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 the civil government. It's saying we can be a community that lives with true justice. And it will be a witness to the world of God's love in our midst. Three myths about justice. These are three myths that keep me from opening my hands the first one is that justice is fairness. The second is that there's not enough to go around. And the third is that my action won't make a difference. Let me just take these quickly. First, justice is fairness. No, it's not. It, 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 we see this in verse 9. Moses says, you know, if you start to do the math, if you start to make it work, if you start to try to make it look fair, then what you're going to do is meanness. Be careful you don't entertain a mean thought, thinking to yourself, you know what, if I loan right now, the year of remission is only two years away, and I'm going to get ripped off, and I just can't afford to, and that wouldn't be fair. He'd get a better deal than I would. That's not fair. And Moses is going, this is not about fairness. This is about justice. I feel this way every time I go and put my numbers into the financial aid calculator, you know. 
So those of you who are parents of college students, you, you know how this works. You put your numbers in there, and I go, you know, as I'm doing that, I'm thinking about every vacation I never took, every new car I never bought, every, every dinner out at a swanky restaurant that Ann and I never enjoyed. And when the number comes back and I realize I'm not getting much financial aid compared to somebody else, I say to myself, that's not fair. And it's not. Because I sacrificed. We, I, we lived on a budget from the first month we were married. I could, we rounded to the nearest dollar. And, you know, we sacrificed. And so, but somebody else is getting more financial aid. But if you ask me, is that justice? I would say to you, absolutely. I am so glad that there is a family who can send a child to college who couldn't otherwise afford it. That's justice. But it's not the same thing as, as fairness. You see, fairness is about making things even. Justice is about making things the way they're meant to be. Fairness is about measuring what's right in relationship to ourselves. Justice is about measuring what's right in relationship to God. Fairness is about what's deserved, but justice is about what is best. When Jesus comes to proclaim the favorable year of our Lord, he begins his ministry saying, this is about release to the captives, sight to the blind, good news to the poor, the oppression, the oppressed going free. It's the year of the Lord's favor. He's not talking about fairness. He's talking about justice. And God acts in justice through grace. Grace. Myth number two. See, that's justice is fairness. No, it's grace. Myth number two is this, that there's not enough to go around. This is the scarcity mentality. This is seeing justice as a zero-sum game. There's one pie, and the smaller I let my piece get, the bigger, your, the bigger I make yours, the smaller mine. You know, you're a mathematician. You know how it works, right? But that's not the way justice is. Justice is more like laughter. The more you give laughter away, the more you laugh in your own life. The more you give justice away, the more you have an experience of justice in your life. And what undergirds justice is not our resources, Moses says. Look, it's the blessing of God. Verse 4, there's going to be no one in need among you, he says. Because the Lord is sure to bless you. This is emphatic Hebrew. The Lord is sure to bless you in the land. How different would our lives be if we were sure that the Lord would bless us, maybe not materially, but that he's committed to blessing us as we embody his justice. Anthony DeMello, the novelist, tells a story in one of his books about uh, a holy man who's just bedding down for the night under a tree. And as he begins to close his eyes, someone comes running from the village and he says, I- I've just seen a spirit in a dream. And the spirit said to me, that there's a man sleeping under a tree who has the world's most valuable stone and that he would give it to me. And the holy man says, oh, you must mean this. And he reaches into his knapsack and he pulls out this huge stone, a diamond or something. He says, yeah, you can have this if that's what you want. And the villager takes the stone and he puts it under his cloak and he runs back, puts it under his bed and he lies down to sleep all night long. He can't sleep. He tosses and turns. Comes back the next day. He says to the holy man, you know, I couldn't sleep last night because there was a question gnawing at me. You gave me the world's most valuable stone and I want to know what it is that you have that's more valuable than this that allows you 
to give this stone to me. And of course, we know what that is. It's the person of Jesus Christ. It's the love of God who holds you in his grace. There's nothing more valuable than that. This is the point that Jesus is trying to make when he quotes this verse. Verse 11, you remember he says, the poor will be with you always. And we go, oh, Jesus, I wish you hadn't said that. It sounds so apathetic. You know, there's a woman who's broken the alabaster vial of a, uh, a neck off a vial of, of oil. And she's anointing Jesus' head as he's uh, over a table. And it's just a beautiful moment. But all the disciples start to grumble and they say, hey, man, you could have taken that oil and you could have sold it for a pretty penny and given it to a whole lot of poor people. This is just totally a waste. There's just a, not enough to do this. And Jesus says, don't forget Deuteronomy 15. When he says the poor will always be with you, he's, he's quoting uh, verse 11. Remember, you just read it. It says, since there will never cease to be some in need on the earth, I therefore command you, open your hand to the poor and needy neighbor in your land. He's saying, do you see what she's done? She's just discovered in my grace, the forgiveness of her debts that allows her to be able to forgive the debts of others. And she takes this thing that's so valuable and she just, quote, wastes it on me in gratitude. And he says, this is demonstrative for you because someday you're going to realize how much I love you too and that I've forgiven your debts. And you're just going to go wild realizing the abundance, not the scarcity, but the abundance that God has poured into your life. And this will give you the freedom to address those who have needs, those who are poor all around you. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, we refuse to believe that the bank of justice is bankrupt. There's still more. That's the second myth. There's not enough to go around. The third myth is this. It won't make a difference. My simple act of opening my hands is just too small. I'm just one person. It's just a small act. And life is just so much bigger than that, right? Tomorrow, we're told that the population clock ticks forward into 7 billion people on this planet. That's just too many people. What could I do to bring justice on this planet? And the myth is that you're doing it alone. See, and Moses makes this clear with a single pronoun that gets repeated more times than our translators render because it would just get plain annoying. But in verse 7 and verse 11, the pronoun that recurs, almost every other word, is your. See, this is a corporate reality. It's not an individual thing. This is about your land, your town. This is about your neighbor, who is, by the way, your brother. Member of the community is what our translation says, but literally, it's, this is your brother in need. It's not just about him. It's about you. It's about the gift of community that I'm giving to you. This is about... Being more than just yourself, it's about being a people loved by God. And I will work my justice in the world through the corporate life of this community. We're so fragmented and individualistic in our culture in the West today, we don't think this way. You know, even the, even the church of, of, of Jesus Christ is fragmented. You know, the Orthodox, they don't recognize the Catholics. Catholics don't recognize the Protestants and the Protestants don't recognize the Pope and the Baptists don't recognize each other in the liquor store. And <laughs> we're just so separated. But we belong to one another. Those who are alive in Jesus are alive together. And we're called to live our life for the world. 
So, finally, let's talk about this. What does this mean? How does the living God break us out of our tight-fistedness? Here's the point. And here's what it looks like. This is the take-home. Trust that Jesus is opening hands to you so that you can give things up and give things away. Trust that Jesus is opening hands to you so that you can give things up and give things away. See, we're tight-fisted in relationships. At marriage, for example, we, we, we tend to be aware marriage is just an experience of love, but it's also an experience of disappointment and loss and hurt, let's be honest. And we like to bring that hurt up against again and again from time to time. We bring out all the old trash and we hold it over the other person's head and we say, because of this, or you always, or you never. And we can't make it fair. We want to make it fair. If we've been hurt, we want to hurt the other person. But you know what? Fairness has killed relationships again and again and again. Steve Hainer said, nursing bitterness is drinking poison and expecting the rat to die. Right? But it's going to kill us. It's going to kill the relationship. Don't try to even the score or give it up. What if Jesus related to us that way? He doesn't. He says, I love you and I hold you in my grace so we can open our hands to each other. We get tight-fisted at work. You know what it's like at work to do something really big and work really hard and be really proud of that achievement and then watch somebody else walk away with the credit, right? You do all the research, but the lead name on the article is somebody else. Really? You bring the parties together. You negotiate the whole deal. You all but close it. Someone else's signature said, she did it and not me. Do you believe that? How hard do you work to get credit with your colleagues to be noticed when other people get acceptance and honor for what you've done? I like what uh, Indira Gandhi said, former prime minister of India. She said, you know, there are two types of people in the world. There are people who do the work and there are people who take credit for it. She said, be the people that do the work. It's better. And what allows us to do that is simply the example of Jesus Christ who gives his reputation away with wild abandon. And he says the first will be last, the last will be first. That's our secret. It's okay in my love. You can give it away. We get tight-fisted with our resources, our time, our money, our energy, our home. I was struck last uh, a couple of weeks ago. I was talking with one of our members and she said, yeah, I got a couple of uh, street youth living with me. And I thought, you're kidding me. That sounds dangerous. And we thought, how does that work? I mean, um, how long will they stay? Would you ever be able to get them out? You know, these, or, or would they abuse the privilege? And that's not what she's thinking. She's not living tight-fistedly. She's living with open hands. Why? Because she knew, knows that what she does for the least and the last, she does for Jesus. She ministers to him. Think about your life. That place where you're tight-fisted. Two questions. What are you holding on to that you really could just give up? In fact, you'd, you'd be better. You'd be better. And it may not be a small thing, by the way. It may be something huge. A deep wound. But if you would, if you would give it up, you'd be better. Secondly, uh, what are you holding on to that you could really just give away? You know, you don't have to solve the world's problems. But one person, someone right in front of you, in need, what's in your hand? What is it that you could give? Last spring, and I'll close with this, uh, some of us 
were with Mark Laberton. Mark Laberton followed Earl Palmer down at First Press Berkeley as a senior pastor. And he told us a story about a woman named Doris. Doris was coming to church one day. Uh, she's in her 80s, and she's a little frail. She's reaching across the driver's seat to pull the oatmeal muffins off the passenger seat when from behind she gets struck very firmly and shoved across the street by a young man huffing and puffing who gets behind the wheel and turns the ignition and drives off with Doris in the car. She's getting carjacked. And she does the most natural of things, apparently, to her. She turns over and she says, what's your name? <laughs> he says, my name is Jesse. She says, well, hi, Jesse. Um, what are you doing? And, and he, he's some years old. He says, well, I'm, I'm taking you to your bank. We're going to take your ATM card and we're going to take money out of uh, your ATM machines. And she says, well, why would, why would you do that? He says, because I, I do drugs, I'm an addict, and I need another fix. She says, oh, Jesse, that's, that's very bad. That's very, very bad. She said, that's, that's just not healthy for you. It's, it's just, it's not going to be good for your life to be an addict. You really need to find a rehab program. Jesse says, I've already done a rehab program, and it didn't work. And they go from ATM to ATM machine until her, her, her machine seizes up and, you know, will no longer use her, her card. And then Jesse's just going to drop her off at the side of the road. And she says to Jesse, she says, Jesse, let me tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray for you. And this will be my prayer. I'm going to pray that you get caught, that you're arrested. Uh, I'm going to pray that uh, this arrest stops you from doing what you've been doing. But more importantly, I'm going to pray that because you're arrested, you get sent to a good rehab program. And he said, yeah, yeah, whatever. And Jesse was off and gone and months passed. And sure enough, the Lord heard her prayers. Jesse gets arrested and brought into court. And there's Doris. Hi, Jesse. It's me, Doris. I'm the one that you carjacked. <laughs> right in front of the judge, you know. And she says, Judge, everything he's charged with is true. But listen, Judge, what you have to understand is that Jesse's a nice guy. He's just gotten himself in trouble because he started taking drugs and it's addicting to him. And he's tried rehab before and that hasn't worked. What we really need to do is get Jesse into a really good rehab program. Would you help him? Would you help me help him? The judge has never seen anything quite like this. That's a woman living with open hands. Mark Laberton said he visited with her and, you know, he didn't know what to say. And he said, geez, um, Doris, I'm so sorry that this horrible thing has happened. She said, yeah, it's absolutely horrible that someone would get so addicted to drugs and, and do this kind of thing and be so desperate. And, you know, he said, no, no, I, I mean, I'm so, so, so sorry that this horrible thing has happened to you. To which Doris replied, oh, well, yes, but really, why not me? This sort of thing happens every day to thousands of people. There's no particular reason this shouldn't happen to me. That, friends, is living with open hands. That, friends, is living justice. Let's pray. Gracious God, you call us to live boldly because you hold us securely. You have given us your own son. Freely we've received. And so now freely we can give. Bring to mind as we walk through the doors the places of brokenness in our lives where we've just held on too tightly and just need to let it go. Bring to mind the people in our lives that we can open our hands to and serve in some way, even if it's the smallest of ways. But Lord, let us not put it off. Let us not delay. The time is short and the moment is now.
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.